How you doing? My name is Luke Such. And I'm Scott Meinema. And today we are wrestling with the question of resources, songs, books, materials that are written by people who have had either theological or moral failings. Can and should you use those resources? Yeah, I think the question, it actually came up last night with the... Uh, Last night from when we recorded this. Oh, yeah. Thanks yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah, Sorry. No, you're good. Everybody knows. <laughs> Everybody knows what day you're living in, Scott. <laughs> but the, the way the question was framed, should Christians listen to music from Hillsong, Bethel, the Jesus Culture, oh, Elevation, yeah, yeah. and so forth? So all we're doing is kind of expanding that into, it's bigger than, yes, it's about music, it's also about everything else that we're taking in. So so what are some of the reasons when when this gets brought up? What are the justifications or reasons why somebody would say, "No, we we should avoid that like the plague. Don't it shouldn't have any place in the life of any Christian or even in the uh, life of the church." Yeah, I th- I think this is especially poignant for in our corporate worship time, should we sing these songs or not? And so what are the you know, what are the arguments against you know, and, and I think there's some good ones um, as far as listening to music. And, and I'd say there's, if, if we're going to frame this, we'd frame it in two categories or two buckets. One would be because of the author or author's poor yeah. theology okay. or because of the author or author's moral failings. Right. So, for example, you know, when you talk about Bethel Church, um, one of their pastors, Bill Johnson, and the Bethel Church in general is very charismatic. Um, we would disagree on so many things as far as their theology, um, and, and and so um, it's more of a prosperity gospel. Mm. And so we would we would argue, yeah, that's that's a different. They believe a different gospel almost, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Depending on the day and the sermon and what they're talking about, I, like, yeah, that is really far out. I don't think I agree with that one. And then some other times I think, no, yeah. that was actually decent or, or even good. Yep. So, yeah, there's a spectrum there, but. Or, you know, at Elevation Church, um, yeah. one of their pastors, they would believe more in, they would have a different understanding of the Trinity, hmm. and we would we would disagree with with their view of the Trinity completely. Okay, so I did not do any preparation on the specifics of these things. I was just thinking big picture principles. Um, and and I don't know much about Elevation. I know uh, Stephen Furtick, who's the very notable pastor there, yep. probably started, uh, he came out of the Southern Baptist Seminary, um, was a really good preacher in many ways and faithful. And in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, watch it and go, ah, there's a lot of red flags. Yeah. More uh, in terms of, Character in terms of theology, the the I don't want to say you know it's getting more and more more red flags in the former Soviet Union. They just yeah. keep going up all over the place. Well, and and yeah, and that's who I was referring to. So, you know, they talk about how God. In fact, Stephen himself talks about how God is not three persons, but he's hmm. he's one being that manifests himself in different 
modes. So it's modalism. Yeah. That's ex- I wasn't going to use the big word, but <laughs> you did. <laughs> there's there's no new heresy. That's right. I, I saw a meme a while back ago of a like, like a, a parking lot. You know, you're going down in the Walmart and you're trying to find a spot, and you go to like, oh, there's an empty spot, and you go to turn in, and there's like a smart car that's pulled all the way forward, and the meme was. Uh, uh, and in, in like, it took a picture of that line of cars and said, oh, a new way to talk about the Trinity. And then it got up close and said, an ancient heresy that you like that car <laughs> sitting there, an ancient heresy that you should have known about. Yeah, there's, there's no, no new heresy. They've all been tried. A lot of the songs that come out of these groups, too, have a very charismatic Pentecostal bent to them. Mm. And I think one of the strongest arguments against... Um, singing the music would be, you know, it's without, you know, spend a lot of time on this. It's, in my opinion, it's birthed out of a different theology of worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in other words, the, the thinking is the, that when we talk about praise and worship, that's a, a term that gets used a lot, praise and worship music. And the idea is that the music is intended to draw me, more specifically to draw my, my heart and mind into um, an emotional and, 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 and into the presence of God. Yeah. And we would argue against that and say, no, praise from, if we just look at a reformed view of praise and worship, praise and worship is birthed out of a heart and mind that is already intoxicated by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and it's a response to what God is doing in my life. Yeah. Totally different, right? Perspectives on what worship is about. But when you look at when you look at the Bible storyline of worship and you look at the Psalms, it's always the the psalmist praise is it's I can't hold it in. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so intoxicated with the reality of God mm. and his word. I can't help yeah, but yeah. respond. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that that like kind of baseline understanding of how the spirit works in worship is an intro, a very pivotal difference. I, I forget who the conference one time, or maybe it was a professor it's in there somewhere in my memory of someone who said, "I don't know why it, whenever we say." the Holy Spirit is working, we use it to justify something completely off the wall, some really weird behavior. Like, does the Holy Spirit not work in any regular way? Can he not yeah. work in a service that we planned and that we ha- you don't have to sit in the front row and be like, oh, well, the Spirit told me. You're like, no, no, the Spirit worked while you were prepping, while you were pre- planning, while you picked the song before. You don't need to, to punt to the Spirit in order to justify your weird choices. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this would be part of what we're talking about, of a, a different view of worship broadly, but of also how the Spirit works and what should and should not be normative in the life of the church. So maybe we're yeah. stacking all those up to say, we've got some pretty big differences. We do. Let, let me just, can I make the pile a yeah, little bit higher? Yeah, go ahead. Pile on. Because I, I think one of, I think the theology of worship is a strong one. Uh, another one is just the idea of as younger or Immature believers are introduced to some of the music, and it and it's attractive, and some yeah. of it is lyrically very accurate, very theological. But that gets drawn. It's like, oh, I want to go listen to their YouTube videos, or oh, I want to go buy one of their books, and then they begin to get drawn into a false theology. Yeah, 
and they're not mature enough to be able to discern it. And so, again, I, I think these are these are good and compelling and strong arguments. Slippery theological slope. Yeah. And you start yeah. down that road. I really like Stephen Furtick. Um, and then we go, oh, okay, and then start start working towards adopting some views that probably shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. So that's a list. What does the Bible have to say about it? Oh. <laughs> there are there are compelling uh intuitive reasons. Yeah. That being said, what I hope we're always trying to do, do those reasons stand up to what the Bible offers in terms of wisdom on this issue and and it's not silent on this issue. Yeah, because again, when you hear one side of the argument, it, it takes me back to Proverbs, right? The first to plead his case seems right sure. until yeah. he's examined. And so what I think what you're saying is, well, okay, you, you've got some good arguments there. Let's just examine it, this argument, this this question in light of Scripture. Right. So, yeah, lead us off. What, what do you, yeah. let's, can we create kind of a theological framework for thinking about this question? Yeah, I, so the first biblical aspects that come to mind when I think about this is Paul's difference in tone and in language in the first chapter of Galatians and the first chapter of Philippians. So if if you don't remember, Galatians reads uh, like a, a theological t- trip behind the woodshed, like Paul is taking them to task. So it starts uh, in verse 6 of Galatians 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeesh, okay, thanks for writing to us, Paul. Um, and then verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, and I love this, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, that's strong language. It's very strong language. And and it's offered on the basis of a contrary gospel. So I think bullet point number one, if any song or book teaches a gospel contrary to the gospel of Christ, that you are saved by the grace of God through faith and that there is no other means of salvation, to to use the old church history term, let them be anathema. That is to be damned, to be rejected entirely. It doesn't mean I have to hate that person or that that ministry, I, but I do really hate the fact that a different gospel is being preached. And I think the Bible is trying to show us, you should have a little bit of fire in your belly for that sort of... When you watch a prosperity gospel preacher on TV, that should anger you some because it angers God that a, a separate gospel is being preached. Yeah. Yeah, so I think what you're saying is just right out of the gate, because we, we've we've said that the arguments against this, there's a theological and there's a moral argument Yeah. Um, as far as the authors. You're saying just if the lyrics are contrary to the gospel— Toss that song. Yeah. Get rid of it post-haste. There's no place for that. And, and that is what Paul lays out for us in the first chapter of Galatians. Now— there's a second side to that, which is the first chapter of Philippians. We went through this not all that long ago, but here we have a very, very different tone from Paul in Philippians 1.15. Some, 
indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So some are preaching the gospel of Jesus, but they're doing it with bad motives. Okay? So maybe they've got, I, they've got the theology correct. That's right. But they're doing it for the glory of self. They're doing it. Yes. They're not yes. doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it for selfish gain. The content is accurate and pleasing to God. The heart behind the content, not There's so much. There's errors around it, it in the person and the way it's communicated and the desires and motivations. Okay, so what does Paul do with that? Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, that's the framing. How does Paul respond? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That is an astounding turn, especially in the context of Philippians, because here the false, uh, the error that is around the true gospel is aimed at Paul personally. They are trying to attack him and trying to undermine his ministry, but they're still proclaiming the gospel. And even in the instance of personal attack, Paul says, I don't care. The gospel of Christ is proclaimed. And we are going to elevate that and say, yep, they, they have all kinds of errors that go with their motivation and their persons, but the gospel is being proclaimed and I rejoice. So bullet point number two, if it is true and accurate and good and theologically robust and a reflection of the gospel of Christ— even with error around it, you can embrace and teach and sing and use that for God's glory. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's good. And, you know, kind of touched on this, but boy, when you look at not all the lyrics, but many of the songs that come out of, for example, Hillsong, lyrically, they are, they are solid. Uh -huh. They proclaim Christ. They proclaim a clear view of at least lyrically, of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. It's a very uh, triune, um, accurate lyric. And um, I think what you're saying is, if it glorifies God, if it proclaims Christ, if it's theologically accurate, go ahead and sing, yeah. and sing with all your heart. Because the, the singing of the truth of who God is is honorable to God. Yeah. Apart from... The person who wrote it, and I, I mean, there's an, another side to this that we could say at, at a logic level, that is what's known as a, a genetic fallacy, that because of who said it, it must be wrong, and you're going to end up tying yourself in all kinds of knots to try and get down that well, road. Yeah. Well, go, no, 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 go ahead. I'm well, sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 no you're, you're, you're just stuck that automatically because of the person or where that maybe what school they went to or whatever it may be, I automatically get to discount that they're wrong no matter what. They have the wrong letters by their name. They're come from the wrong, they have the accent that I don't like, therefore it's wrong. Yeah. Well, and that's the other argument, right? The person that, or the persons that wrote the lyric are, um, whether they're, maybe they, they've, they've had a, for, a moral failure, this is maybe we we let's camp here for a little bit because okay. I think this is again how does scripture inform people who are moral failures who 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 sin and have <laughs> sinned and I mean do we if it's been written by someone who is 
in sin or has sinned or is theological, do we just abandon it? Does the scripture inform that at all? Okay, so Tom, uh, Tom Clothier, our elder who answered a, in, in more brief, this question in the elder Q&A the other night. Um, Shout out to Tom. So yeah, good. Yeah, Tom did the exact right thing on this in that he starts by saying, you've just wiped out all people after Genesis 3, <laughs> right? Like if, if our standard is we can't sing a good song by a sinful person— then we, one, we have no scriptures because they're all written by sinful people. None. We have no scriptures. They're flawed and sinful. Um, we don't have the Psalms. We don't have all of our hymns. The, the hymnody of the church just gets tossed out because how could you? Dig deep. You'll find it. You, you, you should know this from your own life. It, in fact, oftentimes it doesn't even take digging deep. It might take a cursory Google search and you go, oh boy, oh, that's a bummer. Um, so, yeah, the the question of someone's moral failings has in it an assumption that there are some people who haven't had moral failings. Yeah. Yeah, I mean think through just kind of a fast biblical theology of people of faith in scripture who had significant moral fa- moral failures and yet we read I mean they're they're the words of the spirit that he wrote through them is in so Moses is, is in scripture. I mean, Moses had a pretty significant moral failure. In fact, um, wasn't wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. And yet, the first five books of the Bible are written by him. There's songs yeah. that are written by him. Uh, it's like, oh, okay, I, it, this is starting to make a little more sense to me now. It's one of the hallmarks of the truthfulness of the Bible is that it is honest about the shortcomings of its heroes. Yeah. So down the line, you can go, I mean, Moses, obviously, but you, you can go much, you, you can just go Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph kind of stands alone, depending on how you read chapter 37, but just keep going. You just go Moses, Joshua's pretty darn good in terms of how things lay out. But then you get to the the judges and you go, oh gosh, yeah. this, this, this is the mess. Samson, <laughs> yeah. right? And yet Samson is... In Hebrews 11. Shockingly. Like, how, how, shockingly. Did, how did he get there? <laughs> yes. Keep going down the road. You get Saul, you get David, you get Solomon, you get all of the kings. They're just a mess. Even the good ones are just a mess. Yeah. And then you can even go to the New Testament. What happens with Peter? Well, he's a denier. What happens with Paul? He, he's a purveyor of genocide, you know? Like, geez, like you start going down the road. This is not a good group. They're a who's who of first ballot Hall of Fame sinners. Saved by the grace of God. Yep. So if if our standard is no moral failings, then nobody stands the test. One person, one. We have ah, but one. Yeah, yeah, that's good. What about you know even through church history? I, you know, with regards what? I'm to. I'm sorry. Did, did somebody mention church history somebody, in here? <laughs> did somebody say the H word? Uh, did you know we some of the songs that we. You know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about contemporary um, songs, but even hymns in our hymnal that we love and embrace. That's one of the things I appreciate that, that that Tom mentioned was that you know we there's songs that we sing with all of our heart and we embrace, and they were written by men who w- we would have some differences with, both morally and theologically. Absolutely, 
uh, so he mentioned uh, Come Thou Fount, and I don't remember the author of that one, uh, but uh, the author of it as well, Horatio Spafford as well, and some of the, where, where they ended up in their mm-hmm. lives, and definitely not in good standing within a church. I, it was it, very, very far away, but it didn't change the fact that the song they wrote was true. Was was a reflection of the gospel, was honoring to God. And so we have this tension there between those things. And can you, and I think biblically we have good ground for this, to take what is good and God-honoring and say, yes, they have failings. Yes, they, they may even have errant theology, but this, this song or this book or this thing is good and worthy and honorable to God. And for that, we can be grateful. Yeah. I rejoice the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. Yeah, you mentioned Martin Luther, and a mighty fortress is our God. Uh-huh. Love the lyrics of that song. You bet. And yet, he hated Jewish people. He, I mean, if, if he was alive today, he would have a different perspective on what's going on in the, in the Middle East than... Then we would. Luther was cited by the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials, giving the Nazis are trying to provide justification for what they did during World War II, and they're citing Martin Luther. Wow. Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. The failings of God's people go deep. You know, and God is so good Mm -hmm. through Scripture, through history, to remind us that there is only one hero. Mm -hmm. There is only one who... we are we are so flawed, and yet we we hold oftentimes hold these men and women up, and yet we're reminded that other than Christ, Christ is the one whose eyes we we want to stay on. Christ is the one who we want to imitate because everyone else is flawed. Yeah, and boy, Scripture is so good at reminding us of that. One one last quick church history note on that: um, there there is a equivalent. It's not exactly, it doesn't map on one-to-one, but the principles are there in church history on this question that's called the Donatist controversy, if you want to go dig deep. Um, It shows up in the fourth and fifth century, and essentially the church was persecuted very heavily, and you had some people who denied the faith under persecution, who later came back. And the question was, are they able to come back? But a part of that controversy showed up in that some of those who denied the faith were pastor, well, priests at the time of of how the Catholic Church would have described it. Um, And people were concerned, is my baptism invalid because the priest who performed it is no longer a a Christian? And the answer comes, the definitive answer really doesn't show up until Augustine. There's this, there there was a, a sect of people that thought the church has to be pure, has to be completely set apart and pure. And Augustine comes along and kind of puts that to rest and uh, the idea that, one, you think the church could be pure in any way, shape, or form. You're, you're erred in so many ways, but also your baptism is not valid or invalid based on the quality of the person who performed it. It is valid because God has chosen to show grace through that. Now, we have a very different view of baptism, and we'll mean different things, but the same principle there right. is going to apply. It, it The song isn't valid or invalid based on the person who wrote it, or the book, or whatever the Bible study. It is valid or invalid based on whether or not it is accurate to who God is and what he's revealed himself to be. Yeah, that's good. Well, as we kind of draw this to a close, what are, I guess, two questions. Yeah. What would be the key point that we're 
we're making here. And then maybe what what would be some good questions to ask to as we evaluate lyrics, music lyrics, or yeah. or anything else for that matter? I, I mean, I I think you've You've already said it, but I'm just trying to summarize yeah. this oh, right we now. Can recap. Um, so I think it's two points. If any resource in any capacity denies the gospel of Christ, toss it out. Toss it out quickly and don't look back. That's that's not hard. Um, second, if there is a song or a resource written by a person who is flawed in their theology or in their morality, but that song or resource is honorable to God and accurate to the gospel, you can, and good conscience, use it. You don't have to, by the way. I understand uh, my, my dad referenced in that uh, uh, the, the Q&A session uh, a book by uh, Philip Yancey and some of Yancey's views that had just come out. We were about to do a study that was written by him that had just come out on his changing view of homosexuality. And because of the timing— it felt like an endorsement of this very notable person who had very notably changed his tune on this. And so we decided not to use it. I don't, you don't have to just because, and there are times when wisdom and prudence suggest, yeah, be careful there. Be careful. It, it's for whatever reason, hard for someone to separate the errant view from the good thing. There's time for wisdom for sure. That being said, you can in good conscience use a resource written by a flawed person. Yeah theologically or morally, if the resource in and of itself is accurate to the gospel, it brings glory to God. Rejoice in that. Kind of a follow-up question to that. What if lyrics aren't, on the surface, they're not um, preaching a different gospel, they're not, re- but they need, they're unclear. They, mm-hmm. they need some explanation. They could go either way. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, uh, we've not touched on this before, so maybe you can you can disagree with you if you want. Um, I think I'd toss that song because there are so many good ones that are clear. Yeah, and I don't yeah. want to. Is that where you would fall on that? Sure. Yeah, I don't want to leave the door open to, to be like, ah, oh, maybe. No, no, no. I want the songs that we sing, the books that we read, to unapologetically proclaim with clarity the greatness of God, and. To to be uh, foggy on blurry on the edges, man. Yeah. He's been clear. Speak yeah. clearly. Go to the cross. Understand it. Proclaim it. I, it. Delight in it. Don't miss the glory there by being mealy mouthed and I don't know trying to appeal to a broad audience. Pff, get rid of that. Yeah, that's any, good. Any part for that. So key point. What's the key takeaway? If it's accurate to the gospel, it glorifies God. Yeah. If it's consistent with Scripture, use Scripture yes. to evaluate everything. Yeah. One good resource on this, um, and, and there, may, there may be others, but Gavin Ortland has a book came out not too long ago called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. Mm-hmm. And what he, he basically, he does not go issue by issue in that book. He lays out a grid for how to uh, understand how central to the Christian faith any particular doctrinal question is. It, it's really uh, trying to grapple with doctrine specifically, but it would apply very well to, you asked like, what kinds of questions would you use? 
So he's, he's going to walk you through a bunch of good questions. I should have brought that with. I didn't, I, this was uh, on the spur of the moment. I, I, I should open that book up and say, here are some of his good questions. Maybe we'll do that in another time. Um, but that would help you think through what's at the center. What, what is absolutely essential? What do I need to make sure is accurately and clearly, as you mentioned, proclaimed? Um, it's a good book. I like, I like Kevin Hortland. Good. Well, let's, let's wrap up with 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Test everything. Mm. Hold fast to that which is good. 